0: Matthew chapter 18, and I'd ask you to stand with me as we read God's word. Matthew chapter 18. As Jesus finishes this discourse to his disciples, we end on a very weighty again, as the whole chapter has been, notes in this on forgiveness through the parable of the unforgiving servant. God's infallible and holy word today. Then, and I just want to point out, then is connected to what went before. After talking about church discipline and the whole discourse, then Peter came up and said to him, to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times times therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants and when he began to settle one was brought to him who owed to him 10,000 talents and since he could not pay his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him that debt, the debt. But when that same servant went out, that's almost immediately here, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. And should, you, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers, literally the torturers here, until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Please pray with me. Father, we have a text here that, that speaks for itself, Lord. Um, and I pray that today as we consider it and we, as we walk through it, that you would fill us with your spirit to show us the great and amazing grace that we have the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that you would move us, that we would be constrained, God, to have the gospel so before our eyes all the days of our life that we would hate and be repulsed at the idea of unforgiveness living in our heart. Help us, God, to know the great sin of unforgiveness and help us to flee from it, God, because we're all so prone to it. God, please come. Help us. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Throughout the Scripture, we have what many theologians would have a dichotomy of the indicative and the imperative. And many of you have heard that dichotomy before. The indicative is the things that that truly have taken place uh, etymologically, and the imperative is the commands. And when we look to the Bible, one of the important principles that we have for interpreting Scripture is that God always gives His commands with the indicative in mind. What do I mean? Well, when God he gave his commands to the people of Israel. We look in the Ten Commandments... ...and we see that he does not give his commands... ...and then saying, and if you do these commands... ...I will save you. Rather, I am the God that saved you out of the land of Egypt... ...out of the place of slavery and bondage... ...therefore, do these commands. We see this throughout the Old and New Testaments... ...and I want us to realize here today... ...that this text has the same emphasis... We ought not to ever read Christ in speaking this way, even so strongly, and what we might consider to be condemningly, and we should not interpret our Savior as saying, you must forgive your brother so that you might earn the forgiveness of your Father in heaven. Rather, I want us to be clear right from the very beginning that Jesus is teaching us that the gospel is so wonderful and so great, the forgiveness is so free and magnanimous that it requires us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Jesus here teaches us, the church, that we must forgive one another without limit because God has forgiven us without limit. And the purpose that I want to share with you today, this text should speak to us in a couple of different ways. And they're clear from just reading them, I hope. But I want us to see that we must, from this text, know the evil of unforgiveness. Christ frames the whole of this parable so that we would know in our heart without a shadow of a doubt that unforgiveness living in my heart is absolutely evil. And second, that we would flee from that unforgiveness. And so, as we go forward today, we must be convinced in the whole of this parable that a refusal to forgive is evil. Is evil. What I mean by evil is it lacks any good in it. There is no good in sin. If you read the, the wonderful little book, By Jeremiah Burroughs, the the sinfulness of sin or the exceeding evil of sin. He talks about how sin is even worse than the devil. Because the devil has being from God and being comes from God, right? The devil, even in himself, has, has something of good in him because he derives his actual existence from God himself. But in sin, there is no good. There's nothing that represents God. In sin, It is the, the shadow of the light of the glory of God, the darkness that fights against God and everything. And so here we must see and be convinced that unforgiveness is a great evil and that we must flee from it. And so I want us to see how this is brought about. In our story, masterfully put together by Matthew, recording the true history, we have this great evil of unforgiveness brought to us in a particular setting, don't we? A problem is introduced. And it comes from the mouth of the Apostle Peter. And if I could rephrase it, I, must, I might say, how much forgiveness is too much forgiveness? And I want us to notice again, verses 21 through 22, we see this setting Peter came up to him, then Peter came up to him. said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him. And as many as seven times, And Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Jesus, in this setting, if we look at the word then, it comes from the whole setting of chapter 18, where Jesus, in the first place, noticed that his disciples had a problem, didn't they? They came to Jesus and said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And likewise, this great discourse ends with a question. As Jesus has gone through this, I hope you've seen that Matthew chapter 18 is concerned with telling us one primary thing, that we are responsible for one another in the church of Jesus Christ. That should dictate our actions in every way. We ought to kill spiritual pride in verses 1 through 4. Why? because I am to view my brother as better than myself. I'm to put myself as a child in the lowest place in the kingdom of God so that I might esteem my brothers. I am to avoid stumbling blocks in my own life, my personal life, and in talking to all of you and living with all of you, because I'm responsible for you. I can take you off the path, so to speak, by putting a stumbling block in your way, And therefore, I must be very careful of it. And Jesus corrects that error. But in verses 10 through 20, Christ tells us that we're responsible for one another when we go astray off the path. Being such sinners inclined to evil still after our conversion, we're to be responsible for one another as a church and that none of us make it to heaven on our own. But we need one another to correct us. And Jesus gives us the heart attitude of seeking after one another. And then in verses 15 through 20, the the exact procedures that we are to go through in seeking after one another. And the implication of those procedures in particular brings a question in Peter's mind. As Christ goes through that procedure, the overwhelming implication of everything that Jesus said is that at any point in this process, there's only one thing required of a sinner to be restored to full communion in the body of Christ's church. One thing is required, and that is repentance. Simple repentance. Repentance of, of seeing the great evil of my sin and turning from it with all my affection in my heart. That is, we're not looking for some sort of a bar to set that you've repented enough. But I can see in my brother, he hates his sin and he's trying to turn from it. If that takes place at any point during the process or even after the process, when excommunication has been done, we are to receive that brother with full communion in Christ. And this brings the sinner completely back into the fold. And this unqualified acceptance is reiterated by Paul in a very familiar passage in Galatians 6.1. Notice how he speaks. He says, brothers, that is to the whole church, if anyone, anyone, is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. And then, listen to the next part. Keep watch on yourself. Lest you too be tempted that is the great temptation that enters the galatian heart enters our heart as well that we must be on guard about that we would restore a repentant sinner in gentleness because not doing so is the temptation that is a great sin and so this unqualified acceptance that's implied in everything that jesus said it brings a question into peter's mind it causes a question probably among the disciples themselves But as we've noticed for the past several chapters, Peter often stands up as the representative speaking to Christ. Maybe the only one with the the gall to to stand up and ask some of these questions. And Peter asks a question to our Savior. And I want us to notice Peter's particular language here. Notice, he, he, he is not making up words that have no context, but he's recalling words from ...verse 15 on church discipline. Notice verse 15 says... ...if your brother sins against you... ...go and tell him his fault. And Peter says... ...Lord, how often will my brother sin against me... ...and I forgive him. In Peter's mind is exactly what Jesus just talked about. And Peter thinks he sees a problem... ...with Jesus and what he just said. Jesus has given this procedure, right? And we live in a, a bureaucratic society... And if we look at a bunch of procedures put together, what often do sinful hearts do? We look for a loophole, don't we? And Peter, seeing what Jesus Christ has said, says, I I think that I discern, Jesus, a, a loophole or a problem in your procedure. This certainly can't repeat forever. That's Peter's baseline assumption here. My brother comes and he sins against me. And we all know that there are people that take advantage of us in this world. So, so, Jesus, you need to give us a cap on this forgiveness. You need to. I mean, it, in Peter's mind, it seems obvious that this has to happen. At some point, Peter says, we need to appeal to justice at some point here and not take forgiveness into consideration. Now, I want us to see that Peter is, is gracious, and you've probably heard this before. Peter proposes that seven times we should forgive our brother. Now, this is far beyond the, the Babylonian Talmud says, in my own words, you can forgive somebody once, forgive them twice, forgive them three times, but after that there is no forgiveness to be offered. In Judaism, forgiveness had a kind of a high, high quality, but notice that Peter... In Christ's ministry of preaching, Peter discerns that forgiveness of sins and mercy is so important to Jesus Christ that Peter is not satisfied with that threefold forgiveness that was often taught by the scribes and Pharisees. Rather, he, he exalts it and says, well, seven times. Would that be the limit that we should put on this? And if we consider what Peter is saying here, and we consider church discipline, How many times in our lives would we practically... ...ever have to go to the same brother about the same sin... seven times in our church life with one another? I think that would be a pretty rare situation, right? And so Peter recognizes... ...the emphasis of forgiveness in Christ's ministry... ...is far beyond the, the Jewish leaders of the day... ...but still, he proposes a cap. But I want us to notice... Christ's response Jesus or Peter rather thinks he's being extremely gracious and offering the sevenfold forgiveness of sins for a particular brother but Christ points out the problem in Peter's logic and the problem is not bad arithmetic it's not as if Jesus says to Peter okay Peter you've offered seven times but really you're not quite grasping the arithmetic of this you need to multiply that by 11 to get 77. Or, or perhaps another number that you would need to multiply that by. That's not the problem at all. In fact, the problem that Christ is pointing out in Peter's logic is that there is any limit at all to the forgiveness. That we would put a cap on how often we would forgive a repentant brother coming to us. It's as if Peter says, I agree, Jesus, that repentance is important, but when can I appeal to justice in this situation? When can my brother pay what he owes? But before we stone Peter for this suggestion, we have to realize that this kind of attitude and logic exists in all of our hearts naturally in Adam. We naturally have a a judgmental legalist that's sitting on the throne of our heart, if not taken off by Christ. And even then, he sometimes whispers in our ear that we must appeal to justice. And we cannot accept a brother or a sister that sins against us back into full communion. I mean, just think about the things that we hear in our hyper-psychologized culture. Uh, I can't be a doormat before somebody. They're just going to walk all over me. Uh, the language, I, I need to set healthy boundaries. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying that you should be a total doormat to somebody or that you can't have boundaries. But we need to be careful with that kind of thinking that it doesn't sink into the idea that I'm not offering forgiveness to my brothers or sisters. And sometimes we can lie to ourselves through those different sayings and saying, well, I forgive them, but I'm not really going to talk to them. I'm not even going to engage them at all in conversation. I'm going to pretend like they don't exist. I'm going to give them the silent treatment. But I really forgive them in my heart. I think, brothers and sisters, we need to be careful. Because again, in this passage, to forgive a brother or sister is to offer them full communion back with us. Full fellowship. These kind of things exist in our hearts and we are not in this text to stand up for our rights as the primary thing. We need to tread with extreme caution and listen to the words that Jesus Christ has to say here. And Christ graciously responds here, doesn't he? He doesn't berate Peter as he's done before, he doesn't berate us. But he does show us our terrible error. And to show us the error that exists in each one of our hearts and our tendency not to offer forgiveness to brothers and sisters and reflect the gospel to them. The way that he does that is through perhaps one of the most graphic parables that Christ gives in the New Testament. He brings it to our mind not just through a a precept, a teaching. Don't have unforgiveness in your heart. Rather, Christ wants us to be so burned into the life and soul of our imagination that he brings us before a king and a debtor. And Jesus tells this parable, and I want you to listen to me. If you hear nothing else today, Christ gives this parable so that you and I would never, ever be comfortable with unforgiveness. And that we would be absolutely convinced that a refusal to forgive one another is a terrible sin that deserves terrible judgment. So, as Christ begins this parable in verses 23 through 27. I want us to notice that Christ is setting us up for the prime event in this parable. The prime event is when this servant leaves the mercy of the king. And strangles his fellow servant. But what Christ wants all of us to realize. That as Christians that know the grace of God. Unforgiveness and that great sin is aggravated. By the gospel. Aggravated. Now that kind of word is in our legal system isn't it? We have aggravated murder. Right? Which means. It's not that I think that I used to think that that meant that somebody was really mad when they committed murder. They were really aggravated. But the idea is that there are circumstances attached, circumstances attached to that particular evil, that law breaking, that actually made the crime much, much worse. Okay? And that's what's happening with the gospel here. We have great and magnanimous grace being offered here. And that compounds the guilt of this man who refuses to forgive. By showing his great forgiveness. This is speaking to you and I brothers and sisters. And so this parable like all parables. It's a representation of spiritual realities isn't it? And just to briefly outline that. We have this human king. Notice in verse 23. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. And I'm not sure why our English translations do this. In the Greek it's very clear. It's a human king. A man king. Anthropos. A human king, this is represent, this human king is representing God. The servants here, all the servants, represent the church of God. The debt represents our sin before God. And the servant, he represents you, okay? Now, he represents somebody that refuses to forgive, for sure. But what's supposed to happen in our mind as we read this text is we're brought into this courtroom, and we see the forgiveness that we have, and we're supposed to say, oh, that's me. I'm the one being described here. And I must be careful that I don't walk in the same way that this servant walked. Now, we're brought into this scene, and we see this king who has to settle accounts with his servants. ...begins to settle accounts with his servants... ...and he brings one who is probably... ...we might consider the greatest offender in the kingdom... ...because he owes 10,000 talents. Now, we, we've probably heard a lot of numbers thrown around... ...and it's not super important that we get this number absolutely right. What's being conveyed by Jesus here is it's an unpayable amount by any person. But if we were to put it into numbers... ...just to elevate the debt that is on this man... 10,000 talents. If it's in gold, it's roughly $18 billion. If it's in silver, it's about $213 million. This is an absolute extreme amount of money. Unless we think, well, I, and I actually looked it up. There's 18, 88, rather, 88 people in this world that I looked up that could pay $18 billion like that. Okay. It's not the purpose of the parable. We need to realize that this is a servant, a slave of a king. This man had nothing to pay. And this is a debt. It's not the king extracting all of his money from his bank account. He has crude debt before this king. This is a debt that is crushing and unpayable. And this king, he sets a servant before his throne. And he brings out all of his debt. Shows it to, him, to his face. But he shows something else, doesn't he? shows the punishment that he deserves. Sell his family. Sell him into slavery. And even though that's not going to pay the debt, take everything that he has. Take everything that he has. And this represents, and I'm sure you all have picked this up, the unfathomable sinfulness of man. And we have it in a picture of debt. We see this several times in the New Testament and the Old Testament, that sin is compared to a debt. And if anybody in this room has been in a place where they've been in a great amount of debt and debt collectors coming to you, you know something of the crushing weight that is felt by that. I remember growing up in my household, it seems like my entire childhood, the phone would ring and you weren't allowed to answer the phone, right? Because there's somebody wanting money, okay? This debt is sizable, and, extreme. and as we consider our sinfulness, we can consider sin in a number of different ways. We can, we can try to define it in a number of different ways. Um, but I, I think the clearest definition that we could have is that sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Now, if we consider that. Sin, that is falling short, is any lack of conformity unto the law of God. And we must ask, well, what does the law of God require? It's that I love my Lord, my God, with all my heart, my soul, my strength, and I love my neighbor as myself. That's the absolute perfect requirement that God sets before all people, even before the fall, and a failure to attain to that, it accrues debt. That is just just because you are a creature... Made in God's universe. You owe Him obedience. You owe Him obedience. We owe Him perfect and perpetual obedience just for being created beings and creatures. We are bound to love God with all our heart and bound to love our neighbor as ourselves. We fall far short of conforming ourselves to God's perfect righteous standard. And even in our attempts to do so... (laughs) We know the the wonderful passage in Isaiah 64, 6, don't we? That says, we have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. That is, considering ourselves apart from breaking God's law intentionally, our righteous deeds that we attempt to do, they fall so far short that in God's sight, they're filthy. And in our picture, they accrue debt. You didn't give me what you owed. You fell short of what you owed to give me. And what does a debtor do? If you fall short to give them what, they, what you give, well, you, you compound your debt. But if that's true, brothers and sisters, about our righteousness, our attempted righteousness, how much more is it true of our transgressions? That God has set a law, a boundary is what transgressions is supposed to remind us of. God set a boundary and we high handedly and willingly without shame on our face jumped over the line to do what we want to do. Our transgressions they add to our debt something that we could never pay. And I I can't with my words describe these things to us. We Sin against an infinite, immutable, wonderful, great and good God when we sin. We take advantage of all of his mercy and his grace. We take all the good gifts that he gives us. Life and being and family and money. And we take those good gifts and we use them to fight against our God through sin. It's terribly sinful. You owe a million dollars lifetimes, and more than that, of punishment for your transgression, for your sin, for your iniquities. Our debt is unpayable. And brothers and sisters, our debt is so bad that it's even unpayable in eternity. That if we go to hell and suffer a million years in hell, we would never pay off our sin. Partly because we never stop sinning. We still hate our God. We still hate our neighbor. Even in eternal conscious torment. What we should see here is the unfathomable depth of our depravity and our sin. That we could never pay back God for the sins we've committed, for the things we've done. And here we're brought before the bar of God and we see the unfathomable grace of God given next. And I'd ask you, brothers and sisters, have you ever had this experience to some degree in your life? Where you've heard the preaching of the gospel... Perhaps if you remember being converted later in life. You remember hearing the gospel for the first time and being convicted of your sin. And it's as if God has taken you before his bar and presented before you all your transgressions and your sin. And you recognize like this man, I can never pay this back. I have no hope to pay it back. And God sets before you the punishment that you deserve. And this man did what you did. He says, I see no recourse and no way out. I must appeal to mercy. He falls on his knees. Notice that in the text. It's very explicit, isn't it? He falls on his knees before this man. And he cries out, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. How foolish a thing that is. But maybe you said something like that to the Lord. But what we're supposed to focus on is not the man and his bad theology necessarily. What we're supposed to see... Is the magnanimous grace of God here that forgives all of his debt. If he was a human king, this would bankrupt his kingdom. This would bankrupt his kingdom. But our God is rich in mercy and grace. Don't we read that in Ephesians chapter 2? But, but God being rich in mercy. Our God has inexhaustible bounds of mercy In his being. That can never be exhausted. He is infinite in being. And he is infinite in his mercy. That he gives to his people. Infinite. God shows us our just payment. He freely forgives. But even this. Is a dim picture. It's hard for us to imagine isn't it. Somebody forgiving. 18 billion dollars in debt. To one person. I know our government can do it to a number of people at the same time. But to one person it's. It's. Almost unfathomable here. But this is a dim picture because God, in the gospel, He does not merely look at you, set your case before you, and say, I forgive you of your prior debt. He forgives you for all of your debt, past, present, and future. And more than that, He gives you true riches of righteousness. True riches of righteousness that'll never pass away in Jesus Christ. One of the things this parable doesn't tell us is how we obtain this, and it's through the cross. Of Jesus Christ. That he really took all of this burden on his own shoulders. Paid your debt in full. And gave you all the riches of his true righteousness. Everything that you could have never given to God. All of your falling short. All of your lack of conformity to the law. And all of your transgression. Is forgiven. And perfectly given. In our Savior Jesus Christ. So massive and undeserving. Is this grace that we see in this text. But if that's true, brothers and sisters, the point of the parable is it's impossible if we believe that for that not to control our lives. And especially in the area of forgiveness of sins. This truth is so boundless and free. It it reminds us, and again, a dim picture if we look to the old covenant. What did the people of Israel constantly refer back to as their mode for obedience? Well, God saved us from the land of Egypt, from the iron furnace. You've been saved for much worse things than that. That must control your life and everything that you do. But this unforgiving servant and this unforgiving heart does not believe either of these realities. He doesn't rest in them. They don't control his, his life in any way, shape, or form. Therefore, he acts contrary to the gospel. And this is where the great deep and dark sin of unforgiveness shows its hideous face with all of its warts and everything. Unforgiveness, therefore, is aggravated by the gospel. But unforgiveness is a great evil because it is contrary to that gospel. It's absolutely contrary and opposed to it. There's nothing in relationship with unforgiveness and the gospel here. And so, we have... In verses 28 through 30, just notice this with me. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him and said, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay The debt, and what I want us to notice here is, if we look at verse twenty-eight, it's as soon as he was forgiven. Can you imagine that being forgiven eighteen billion dollars in money, and as soon as you walk out the door, notice what he does. He hunts for this man. He went and found him. It's not as if the language allows us to think they just ran into each other on the street one day. This man went and sought out this servant, having been forgiven all of this debt. He hunts. ...for his fellow servant. Now I'll remind you here today, brothers and sisters... ...in this parable... ...this fellow servant is a Christian. This is somebody that confesses truth about God. And notice... ...as he hunts down this fellow servant... ...he grabs him by the throat in this very violent language... ...and chokes him. And notice the almost exact repetition... ...of the language that we have from that former courtroom scene... Notice, he seizes him by the neck. says, pay what you owe. And the fellow servant fell down, just like this other fellow servant did. He pleaded with him, just like this wicked servant did. And just like that wicked servant says, have patience with me, and I'll pay you. Those are the similarities that we have here. He fell down, he pleaded, he asked for patience. But the differences that we see between this wicked servant and this fellow servant from what we just saw in this courtroom scene, are massive. The differences that we see is the amount of money owed. Okay? So we have... We have 100 denarii talked about here. Okay? And I I think I've heard it referenced before, like, this guy owed 100 pennies, or this guy owed 18 billion dollars. That's not exactly right. As we see this money, a denarii was one day's wage for a common laborer. In this time, And so we have here about a third of a year, a little less than a third of a year. And if we're going to equate that to money today, this man owed him about $10,000, we could say. Not a small amount of money. And the difference that we also see is not just the amount owed, but I want us to notice, and we don't get this clearly in our English translation, but we have an imperfect tense being used here. Now, it might not mean a lot to you. But in imperfect tense, it describes a, a past reality that was ongoing, okay? Such as we could say Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. It's not saying that he walked in one particular act of time, but that he was continually walking during a segment of his life. And we have in the imperfect tense here notice, he began to choke his fellow servant. This wasn't just an act of passion. That happened in a moment. He began to choke his fellow servant, but also in the imperfect tense is pleaded. Did this fellow servant, he didn't ask one time, forgive me of my debt that, I, that I've committed, my sin against you. He was continually pleading with him, please forgive me of what I've done. But there's another thing in the imperfect tense it's refused. He refused. The, the King James actually translates this a little better. He would not. He would not. His will was not to do it. There is a continual action here where this servant is trying to get forgiveness and just trying to get time to pay back his debt. He's willing to do it. But this man continually refuses to pay him. And I want us, as we think about this great and graphic scene, I want us to see that what this text is not saying to us is that the sins committed against us in the church are light sins. ...or things that shouldn't bother us at all. That's not what this text is conveying. That $10,000 being owed to almost anybody I've ever known... ...would be real debt. There'd be real ramifications of that kind of money being missing. And the sins committed against us... ...they cause real trauma to our lives. Real evil is perpetrated against us here. But the point of this text is that considered alone... We might be confused about forgiveness, but when we consider the gospel of Jesus Christ and what's been done for us, sin is incomparable. It's incomparable. The gospel must take such a center stage in our life that it affects how we treat one another. That is, we ought to believe the gospel to such a degree, and we must believe the gospel to such a degree, that when we are sinned against one another, and we, we remember the courtroom scene when we were brought before the king, and he forgave us everything, that that should control us, brothers and sisters. And this is the language of the rest of the New Testament. Turn with me to two passages that are well known to you. I am doubtless. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And again, what's being pointed out here is what we introduce this text with. The indicative of the Gospel and the the command to forgive. Notice with me in Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 31 and 32. Paul writes to the church, let all bitterness and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you. Doesn't that imply that it was among them, first of all? Along with all malice. And then, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Why do we forgive one another? We forgive one another being motivated by the fact that God in Christ forgave us. The only being in this world that has the right to say, pay me what you owe. He forgave us. And then also in Colossians, we have a a very similar parallel text. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 in verses 12 and 13. I love verse 12. He says, put on then. Put on then as God's chosen ones. Notice the indicative there. Because God has chosen you, right? Holy and beloved. These are the indicative of this passage. You've been chosen for nothing you've ever done. You are holy and beloved. Therefore, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. Do you see how that excludes any idea that we can forgive somebody but never have contact with them? bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also notice must forgive. This man in this scene has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his former sins and has acted in a way that is totally contrary to the Gospel. There is no forgiveness existing in the heart of this man, there is no real gospel belief and gospel truth if he can live mercilessly in this way. If we have been united to Christ in His very being through the gospel, and we're saved in Him, it is absolutely impossible that we would live our lives in an unrepentant, merciless way to one another. That we would say all the days of our life, pay me what you owe. It's not possible for a Christian To continually live that way. But it is possible for us to be tempted to that. And to live in that for a time. And so Christ gives this parable. Not as a hypothetical. As something that Christians never experience. But knowing that Christians experience it. He wants us to know that it is a great evil. Because we can convince ourselves. That it's not a great evil. It's a great evil. And then we see lastly. That because this sin is so great. So Contrary to the gospel, therefore, unforgiveness is liable to great punishment. Notice verses 31 through 35. I've I've gone a little long, but I'll, I'll try to not go super long. Okay, 31 through 35, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailer so that he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I want us to see here that simply these fellow servants... ...recognize the evil... ...and they bring petition to the king... ...and a worse punishment is given by the king... ...than what was originally offered. Okay, In the original punishment... ...he says, sell him. Sell his wife and his family... ...and everything he has until payment be made. But here, the words that should stand out to us... ...is that this master in anger reacts here. And he delivers him to the jailers. This word is consistently interpreted... ...as torture what the the demons expected. You might remember when Christ crossed into the area of the Gadarenes and these demons and said, Christ are you here to torment us before the time? Here we have a graphic picture that this man's delivered over to the torturers here. And we see that sins against light deserve greater punishment. But As we quickly try to go through the rest of this, notice the servants that recognize this evil, if we're reading this in context, what should jump out to us is that this is the church exercising church discipline. The servants, the church, they recognize that this man is acting in an unforgiving way and refusing to forgive his servant, and therefore they plead with their master. What did we read a couple of weeks ago? That God... ...hears our prayers when one or two are gathered together in his name... ...especially in the case of church discipline. They bring this to the Father. This great sin. And the Father responds in accordance with this. But what we should recognize is there's a reversal here, isn't there? In church discipline, we have a, a, a man going to somebody that sinned against him... ...and trying to convince him of his sin that he would repent. But here, this man refuses to hear the repentance and to forgive... And so we must take heart, brothers. When we do this, when we confront somebody, we should never have in our heart any kind of blockade that would bar us from, from receiving a brother or sister when they repent. There can be a reversal in this where the person that goes out to, to show the sin of another person actually is the one that deserves excommunication because they did it in an unmerciful way. Unforgiveness brings church discipline, but also unforgiveness brings wrath ultimately against this man. Sins against light deserve a greater punishment from the Father. And Christ's summary here is do not deceive yourselves. Do not deceive yourselves. Unrepentant unforgiveness brings great wrath. Therefore, be careful, Peter, be careful, church, that you purge unforgiveness from your hearts and therefore isn't it the logical conclusion of this not only that we would know how sinful unforgiveness is but to take all steps necessary to kill unforgiveness in our hearts this text is meant to drive us to jesus christ If we have unforgiveness today existing in our hearts, we have something against a brother or a sister and we refuse to forgive them, this text is given for you today that you would recognize your sin and flee to Christ. While we live on this earth, it is the day of mercy. Go to him, repent of your sins and forgive your brother. As we read in Matthew chapter 5, we're about to take communion here today. If there's something you have against your brother, I would tell you, do not take of this table until you've gone to your brother or sister and forgive them. If you struggle with unforgiveness, I want you to take heart. This passage is meant to drive you to the cross so that you would correct your error. And I just want to point out, if you're incredulous about that, we looked at Ephesians and Colossians. Paul would not have written those things if the church did not struggle in some degree with unforgiveness in their midst. This is common, but we cannot be comfortable with it. As Paul says, we should not let the sun go down on our wrath. And so, how do we kill sin? I just would briefly say, we must know our sinfulness profoundly. We must know our sinfulness profoundly. It's good for us to meditate on this servant being brought before the king and the great amount of money that was owed to him one of the things and reasons why unforgiveness is allowed to flourish in a human heart is because they really think that they're pretty good. And even if they say, well, I'm a sinner, I'm better than everybody else, okay? I'm I'm a special person, (laughs) that's in my mind from today, a special person that is able to exercise judgment on somebody because I've reached some level of, of holiness but it is our duty to know our sinfulness and make a habit of reading the scripture in such a way that we know our sinfulness before God the two texts that come to my mind above all things that convict me nearly every day are from the book of Matthew Matthew 7:12 Jesus says so whatever you wish that others would do to you do also to them for this is the law and the prophets When Jesus wants to sum up what the law teaches about our responsibility to one another, whatever you want somebody else to do to you, you ought to do that to them perfectly and completely. And also, Matthew chapter 22, we have Jesus giving the two great commandments, don't we? You must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. These things ought to be in our minds, brothers and sisters, to know that we've never done it. Therefore, how can I go and exact vengeance on somebody that has sinned against me in such a small way in comparison? We know the evil that is in our hearts and we will be slow to take others by the throat if we know our own evil. The self-righteous Pharisee is always willing to compare himself with others and then judge accordingly. But the Christian compares himself with God's holy law and sees himself as the lowest and most sinful of all creatures. But we must go beyond knowing ourselves as sinners and we must know and trust the gospel completely. In order to kill unforgiveness in our hearts, we must know both of these realities. We must know the love of God, that He has forgiven all of our sins, past, present, and future. Sins of commission and sins of omission. He's forgiven. Total righteousness has been given to us and we can say, and I'll, I'll end on this because of the time, In 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 15, with the Apostle Paul. This text should kill the unforgiving heart that we have. Paul says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But notice what he says after this. But I receive mercy... For this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. I'm the foremost sinner. And I really believe that in my heart. And I know, my brothers and sisters, that you believe that in your heart too. We believe that, but we believe that God showed infinite mercy to us, that we would show mercy to others. And there, throughout the eternal ages, God would point to sinners like us and show his perfect patience and righteousness to forgive. And so this text calls us to know the great, unfor- the, the great sinfulness of unforgiveness, but also we must take action to kill it in our hearts. Brothers and sisters, take that action Today, He will give grace and mercy for you to kill this sin. And if you need help, come to us. We'll help you do it. As we turn our eyes to the Lord's table today. Once again, we are partaking together of the body and blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ... And we are doing it in a corporate way.